the impetus for the book was I am, as you said, a Zen teacher, and Steve Stuckey died 10 years ago at the time of his death. He was one of the abbots at San Francisco Zen Center. He had, when he was made abbot, he had not lived at Zen Center for, I don't know, 20 years or something. So he was quite a surprise. Um, he was abbot for seven years when he was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. And that was enough time for people to, I would say, begin to get to know him. His death was an enormous shock. So I have found in the years since his death that I was repeating stories about Steve to my students. And so the point to the book was to gather those stories in the hopes that some kid who has become so curious about Zen that they're coming around um, one of the one of the Zen Center buildings and they go in the bookstore and they've heard about this Steve Stuckey but who was he so what I was hoping for <laughs> this is good this never occurred to me before was hoping for was to concretize his right make permanent <laughs> his teachings hey welcome everybody to Another Plutopia podcast. This is John Lebkowski. I'm working solo today without my partner Scoop. And my guest today is Rinchen Bunts, who is a Soto Zen hi, Buddhist hi, priest. Hi. And uh, Ren yep. and I have uh, uh, known each other for a while, three decades now, kind of. You know, a lot of that was <laughs> virtual. Cool? Yeah. We hardly ever see each other in person. We've met in person maybe twice, I guess. I know we met at a well office party once. And then and at I don't the know, whole Earth then. 50. Oh, right. Yeah. Well, Absolutely. And you, you and Marsha and I had lunch here last year we on did. your wonderful vacation, remember? Yeah, 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 oh, yeah. yeah. I'll never forget that. All the chocolate that we bought. <laughs> wow. So but we <laughs> we are here today to talk about Myogen, Steve Stuckey, and uh, Rin's relationship with uh, Myogen, um, which uh, <sighs> was uh, documented recently in a book. She published this book within the last year, right? Just a few months ago? Yeah, just, and, yeah, I think it was, yeah, maybe four months ago. And it's half your recollections and half recollections that you gathered from some other folks. And it's a it's the a beautiful impetus, book. It's a small book, but, yeah. but it's beautiful. Sorry, Thank go ahead. Thank you. I've received received a number of uh, messages and emails from people saying, "Got the book, sat down, opened the book, didn't get up till I finished the book, and what could make a writer." The impetus for the book was I am, as you said, a Zen teacher, and Steve Stuckey died 10 years ago at the time of his death. He was one of the abbots at San Francisco Zen Center. He had, when he was made abbot, he had not lived at Zen Center for, I don't know, 20 years or something. So he was quite a surprise. Um, he was abbot for seven years when he was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. And that was enough time for people to, I would say, begin to get to know him. His death was an enormous shock. So I have found in the years since his death that I was repeating stories about Steve to my students. And so the point to the book was to gather those stories in the hopes that some kid who has become so curious about Zen that they're coming around um, one of the one of the Zen Center buildings and they go in the bookstore and they've heard about this Steve Stuckey, but who was he? So what I was hoping for, <laughs> this is good, this never occurred to me before, was hoping for was to 
concretize his, right? Make permanent <laughs> his teachings. So I gathered the stories. Most of them I'd already, you know how I am, I'd already written them here and there. And then I opened it to others. And that happened when I was talking with my beloved friend, Hondo Dave Richman, and told him that I was doing the book. And he sent me a story for the book. And I realized, once again, I was going to have to be generous and allow others to participate. So I sent a bunch of emails to people who had studied closely with him and gathered those stories. Now, someone sent me a note recently saying that she um, had been a copy editor and would I like some copy editing done on the published book. So what I told her was, I hope that the, the stories that I wrote, I hope I got those right. I went over them enough times, you know how that is. And, and the stories that others sent, I published as they were sent. I didn't, I wasn't here as a, as a boss. I was here as a medium. And then um, he gave a very famous, when he was first diagnosed, called the gratitude talk. So I transcribed that talk. So that's in the book. And son James wrote some pieces and gave the eulogy at his funeral. And James sent me those. And that's the final part of the book. So it's, um, it's, you know, the last book that I wrote about being a hospice chaplain, that is, I've, I've written and now self-published three books. And the chaplain book is the one, I really wrote it for a mass audience. I wrote it to go to a big publishing house and end up on the New York Times bestseller list. <laughs> but that did not happen. And it was the start of COVID. Death was everywhere. So I said to hell with it. And I self-published that book because I knew how to self-publish a book. That's the one that, that had, I wrote it with a broad view. The book about Steve is something that I hope... Um, as I say, people who've heard of him and want an experience of him, it's really for them, but also for those of us who knew him to continue to have um, an experience with him. So that's, yep, there we are. So we're in brown robes. You see my robe is brand new. The robe is called Anokesa. It's Buddha's robe. And this picture, this wonderful picture was taken the morning after the completion of the ceremony that's known as Dharma transmission. And we are down at Tassajara. I see a picture like that and I can, I can smell the dust and the trees. I spent a lot of time at Tassajara. Maybe the main thing about this picture is we were really happy. We were, I'm the first person he gave transmission to, and uh, we were both just really, that was, that was super fun. Well, b before we go further, uh, we should define w what the abbot is. What is the abbot for the Zen Center? Well, the abbot is the boss. The abbot is the spiritual head, as um, as is well known at San Francisco Zen Center. San Francisco Zen Center formed around Shunryu Suzuki Roshi. I never say he started it because, as I understand it, he didn't have ideas of starting an institution. But the people around him said, this guy is so great. Let's let's make it official. So here's San Francisco Zen Center. Shunryu Suzuki Roshi died young, died too soon. He gave he gave the abbacy to he named as his heir. Richard Baker. San Francisco Zen Center moved into a, a great era of growth and flourishing and fame, which culminated in a crisis, in a scandal, in Richard Baker being ejected. I remember this well. <laughs> An all too familiar tale. Yeah. Yes. So, um, and he, he endures today. 
as uh, as a Zen teacher. So it seems that, of course, since then, the people who were at that time San Francisco Zen Center were um, nervous about an abuse of power. So for some time, there was a co-abbot set up. For instance, it would be Reb Anderson and Mel Weitzman at the same time, which is kind of cool when you think about that. And I is it when Steve came in, as it is currently, there are three abbots. So, so and Steve was one of the three, and he was what was known as the central abbot. And and they have, they still have pretty absolute authority. The main thing is they lead classes. They lead three month ongos at Tassajara. Students flock to them. When Steve first was made abbot, I'd been used to, I mean, we started in a little, we converted a two-car garage into a zendo in his backyard in San Rafael, and we would have formal sitting periods with six people. So that was the kind of access I was used to. And then he became abbot, and he was so scheduled he was a person who did not say no. He was so scheduled. We would be having, between teacher and student, the private conversation is called dokusan. So if the teacher's an abbot, it's dokusan. So we'd be having dokusan, and his eyes would start rolling back in his head, and he'd start, and I'd say, are you falling asleep? <laughs> he'd say, no, but he was. So he was a hardworking abbot and did what he could to to clean up and strengthen the structure at San Francisco Zen Center. So what was, uh, before this, of course, he had been, uh, well, he received the Dharma transmission at some point, years before he became the abbot, I know. Uh, Right. At what point did you meet him? I was doing a workshop at Green Gulch with Yvonne Rand. There's a there's a Zen giant. Died probably three or four years ago. Yvonne was great. So this good looking guy said that he was in a sitting group with a good teacher in Mill Valley. And I, from the very start of my practice, I always was in a sitting group because if I was not in a sitting group that met once a week, I didn't sit at all. So I was looking for a new sitting group. Plus this guy was good looking. So at a break, (laughs) I went up to him to ask, yeah, yeah. Like, oh, tell me more about this sitting group in Mill Valley. (laughs) So that's how I, that's, I know my, um, yes, my romantic side has led to many of the good things in my life or my need for romance side. So this is how I heard about Steve. And it was a sitting group in his living room. We had not yet built the little Zendo. And that was in, um, oh gosh, I think it was 90, it's probably 93 or 94. And and there's something. Well, I was just gonna say that, so this sitting group that he had had no formal relation to the, San Francisco's in center at that point, right? It's encouraged. I'm doing the same. Actually, I have several sitting groups, and it's encouraged for those of us who have trained at Zen Center and are out in the world. Start a sitting group because the water that Zen is selling by the river, all that it's about is seated meditation. This doesn't mean that we don't need the classes, the workshops, the ritual. Those are, of course, extremely important. But sitting meditation is it. So, and the the groups that I have started, I start, I use the same exact format that Steve was offering when I first met him. So this is this is very common. There's thousands of us. I hope there are thousands of us all over. America is then an institution like Zen Center is intended to train people to be able to carry the Dharma forward. 
it is not intended um, to incubate further uh, residents of San Francisco Zen Center. <laughs> and th this is actually the, the, the strong tradition of Buddhism, right, is to continue passing the teaching along experientially, not just like writing a bunch of books or whatever. I mean, there's a lot of books about Zen, and there's a lot of ways that people hear about Zen, but uh, a personal direct transmission is the proper way to become a true or to to put yourself into that lineage and into that tradition of Zen, going all the way back to the Buddha himself. Is that have I got that correct? Yes, you have got that correct, my friend. You've got it is. I was having a conversation with another priest this morning. You know, I moved. I'm pretty remote. I moved coming up on two years ago, and these Zoom, Zoom is so great. So I'm staying in close touch with my good old friends, and we were talking about the difficulties that this world is facing, and what that means is for someone who's been trained, for someone who's taken the vow and is living by vow, it is more important with every passing day that we do what we can to keep this tradition alive, not to take it for granted, not to... I, I also want to say, I've, I'm pretty sure that's what's happening, is we, my generation, and let's say the generation after me, we're having to come up, we're having to not just try to be little San Francisco Zen centers. We are called to analyze, to sift through, to reform the way Zen is presented in America. We're householders. No one is paying us to do this. Where are we going to do it? How formal is it going to be? Do I want to wear robes or do I want to wear jeans? I think the time, I think it's essential. And I take it very seriously. It's time for us to be doing that. Berkeley Zen Center is in crisis. This wonderful, wonderful Alan Sanaki became abbot at Berkeley Zen Center three years ago when the great master who walked among us, Mel Weitzman, died. And in December, Alan had a health crisis. He's still in an ICU. I think he's now, I mean, he's, this is, this is just brutal. And here's Berkeley Zen Center. What's going to happen to Berkeley Zen Center? So these are really important questions that we are called to take a very hard look at. I don't even know what your question was, but that's, that is so much on my mind. And again, the reason that we're called to do this is because the world needs help. I know you agree, John. You oh, yes. Agree. Oh, yes. I'm very oh, concerned yes. about it. And I've been, you know, I try to think of what I can do. And one thing that yep. I know about, well, what, so what's, Buddhi Buddhism, if nobody's ever heard of it, it's still Buddhism, right? I mean, even if <laughs> Even if you had no idea who the Buddha, the Buddha wasn't was. a Buddhist, the Buddha wasn't a Buddhist, right? That's right. Yeah, exactly. But so we're really talking about just a way of being that um, makes sense, but it sort of depends on depends on insight and experience, I think, and. Uh, you yep. you need someone to lead you need leadership you need teachers yep. you need people who can create the right context for that insight and experience it's got to be your insight and experience yep. but somebody has to help you find the path to that and uh so pro um, as i understand the process we we read it on a page and we think oh yeah that's yeah that's true <laughs> that's a good idea. And then through several thousand hours of seated meditation, 
the moment comes when we really understand, oh, that teaching is true. That is that is my truth. Agreeing with you, we have to make the teachings our own. This is absolutely not something that sits on the page of a book. It can be in the student-teacher relationship. It can be that we can sit through 10 excellent Dharma lectures. They'll be talking about a sutra and what the Buddha taught. And that's good. We're paying attention. We're getting it. And then we can be walking down the path behind that teacher and see them do something. And there's more teaching in that seeing a teacher make a gesture than there is in hearing 10 lectures. One of my uh, old friends, Tia Strozer, was what's called the Jisha, the uh, for Kadigiri Roshi. And she said, the Jisha is the shadow. So the Jisha walks behind carrying the incense, could tidy the cabin, help with the robes. It's the assistant. So for years, she was Kadigiri's shadow. And she said, this this is the way to learn. So I had the unusual good fortune to be Steve Stuckey's shadow for 20 years. For some reason, <laughs> for some reason, I was always first in line. And, and I think it was my, my own, initially my own need to be first in line. So going through all of the forms and ceremonies, I was there at his right hand. That's the place to be. And when you when you go to Green Gulch and you see Reb Anderson and you say, wow, that's a real that's a real Zen teacher. I want him to be my Zen teacher. Get at the back of the line, bud, because there are 50 people in front of you. So this good fortune of finding a true teacher who you can get access. This is a great way to learn if Zen is what you want. See, now that I'm a teacher, I see how, <laughs> how many people come to meditation as I did because they're in pain. So they come in the door saying, I don't want to be in pain so much. And I hear that if I meditate, I'll be more peaceful. So they're, they're comfort seeking. They're coming for comfort. I, I'm a part of everyday zen now norman fisher's floating yeah. group god bless norman fisher again a giant who walks among us oh yeah norman gave a great talk recently and he he talked about he says we come to zazen because we want to help ourselves but then he says but but if we stay in zen practice we begin to practice for the benefit of all beings. And I would say, you know, that <laughs> sitting and listening to your mind for thousands of hours, that ego is going to get whittled down. I mean, I do believe that the purpose of seated meditation is to develop a different relationship to our thoughts. But we have to listen to them and believe them for a long time before that happens. It takes a lot. Of, it takes a shaved down ego to be willing to practice for the benefit of all beings. And look where we are in America. How many billions of people live here? That's how many flaming egos are trying to get their own way. A bunch yes. of big babies saying me, me, me was, is how we have ended up in this very, what about... Um, what about the idea of not even living for, but doing one little thing for the benefit of the group? So Zen training can can bring us to at least an awareness of that possibility. I'm having a great time talking, John. I'm going to stop for a minute and see if do you have. What about you? Oh, well, I um. I was just thinking about how the process 
of sitting and sitting and sitting, the, the, med- the process of practice. It creates a vulnerability, I think, and that that's why yep. it's important to have a teacher who ha- maybe has lived in that vulnerability themselves and who will not exploit it in any way, shape, or form, who will uh, appreciate it and and show you a, di- a direction that serves your it serves you and it serves the dharma and it serves you know all beings it doesn't just serve the teacher you know we get as i'm talking about this i I was just to say i was flashing donald trump in my mind and thinking about there's the opposite of what we're talking about you know yes there is pure ego yeah yeah, that's a, that's an example. Let's see, so many pieces to pick up. Well, and, and you know, yeah. when, when you have a real, when you have a teacher who has done the, who is, you know, he's been through this himself, and he, my experience has been that in the presence of, of teachers who have, you know, taken a lot of time to do the work on themselves they have a presence you know that can be powerful i i i recall uh sasaki roshi came to austin once and i happened to have you know some limited amount of time in his presence i think it was at the austin zen center and i could feel it you know i could feel his presence um and we I have to we have to find someone we can trust. Yeah. So, so having having that experience, and that's probably is that what I saw when I the first time I walked into Steve's living room. Um, pro, uh, pro, I hope so because he was always trustworthy. One, th- I, I want to say, I mean so so many reactions to what you said. I want to say, yes, we need to find a place where it is safe for us to be vulnerable. And the person who's going to make that possible is the person who also is vulnerable, right? Vulnerability is circular, as we might say. We want someone to catch us when we're falling. I like to say about Steve, he always gave me enough rope to hang myself, and then he would be there for me. Steve very rarely told me what to do, very rarely. I had another Zen teacher who always was telling me what to do and always telling me that what I was doing was not good enough. That was actually not helpful. Of course, I went into the relationship, tell me what to do, tell me what to do. Steve watched and he loved. So, so it's about finding people who, who have developed the capacity to love and are willing to. My very good therapist, when I first started meditating, I really went off the rails. And so I was looking for a therapist and I ended up in therapy with Sylvia Borstein, another notable uh, Buddhist teacher. She's in the Vipassana tr- tradition. And after a few years, Sylvia said, yes, 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 it's very good. You're examining your family of origin stories and blah, 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 blah. But what's really happening here is you are having an experience of being able to trust. And uh, coming from an alcoholic home, that had been lacking in my, (laughs) coming from an alcoholic home and then falling in love with only alcoholics. The world was not trustable. Steve was trustable. I could, we can always trust the other person to be who they are. So it's my job to find out who is it who I'm dealing with. Stop the projections and dreams. Oh, who? (laughs) To stop and listen long enough to find out, oh, who is this? And then trust that. So 
Steve had the capacity to listen and the capacity to accept me just as I was. This is very unusual. And I, I try to be that kind of teacher, having experienced it both ways. I try to be that kind of teacher. <laughs> and the years of working as a hospice chaplain really help, right? I Because what is that but listening? This is really making me think. I, I had a bad experience recently, and it was about a betrayal of trust, I guess you would say, or someone who uh, yeah. I felt I could trust did something that wasn't very trustworthy or tr didn't, yeah. you know, it was a betrayal of trust. And um, I have been thinking about, I was, I'm kind of surprised at how I reacted. I had a very strong reaction to that. It may be, you know, I, at some level I was, so different levels, you know, at some level I was really upset about it. At another level, I kind of understood them and understood exactly what they were doing. And um, I understand how they arrived at the place that they arrived at where they took the action that they took that I felt was so detrimental, was such a betrayal to me. So I could, yeah. I guess I was trying to hold in my head at the same time the fact that I was very, very upset and depressed. And at the same time that I understood and that, yeah, in a sense, on one level, I wasn't accepting it very well. And on another level, I accepted it, you know, and uh, I'm so still kind of dealing with that. One of the things I love most, one of the things that I love most about Zen is it, it, it's a teaching in holding two apparently contradictory viewpoints at the same time. We don't have to choose. And we, in America, we are trained to choose. We are trained as if I like it and I don't like it are really important. They're actually not, they actually don't matter at all. So, yeah, someone, you know, I've been, I've been down with a cold and I notice how when my body doesn't feel well, my emotions don't feel well. The body and the mind are not separate. So I've been very fragile. I've been, you know, like in that stage where you're crying at the phone company commercials. I've been crying. This is very unusual for me. And a couple of days ago, a friend hurt my feelings. And I'm driving away from the encounter and I'm thinking, what was that? I thought, yeah. He hurt my feelings. <laughs> so we say one of the great phrases in Zen is he showed me his suffering. Why should I blame another person for suffering, for acting out his suffering? Right? I don't mm -hmm. have to I don't have to emotionally kill him. I don't have to fight back. So I can, as you said, I can hold my hurt feelings. I'm gonna I'm gonna go so far as to say that spiritual maturity is being willing to take the next step and think, oh, he's hurting. Oh, to to do that, he's hurting. And to hold as as just as you said, to hold both of those. He hurt my feelings. <laughs> Alcoholics Anonymous, the big book, has a wonderful phrase, restraint of tongue and pen. <laughs> and my, my, weak, mm -hmm, my weak point has been my temper. And so I would get right on the phone and tell someone what I thought. It, it's actually not necessary to do that. To be able to drop the judgment, to be able to understand, you know, I, I think about 
I had a wonderful husband when I was still drinking. Great, great. I think about him. Oh, if I had that to do over. <laughs> I wanted him to read my mind. He was supposed to know what I wanted without my saying anything. And he was supposed to provide it. This is a rough setup. That's being spiritually and emotionally immature. <laughs> So, so, so grow up, ask for what you want. If you're feeling hurt or temper, keep your mouth shut, wait, and understand the other, understand that the other person is a human being too. Yeah. Yeah. When, uh, when I was upset the other day, I wrote an email to the people involved and, um, I just said, you know, this is what you've done and this is how it made me feel, you know, and uh, just kind of laid it out there and never got a response. And I thought it was very odd that I never got a response. Yeah. I think that I don't I know. I think if we can if we can if we can limit it to this is how I felt. And resist the impulse to say this is what you did wrong. Then yeah. I don't know, John, you know, it probably hell, came out a little bit people. like that, too. I mean, yeah. <laughs> well, anyway, you had, yeah, I've you, been, you mentioned good, in good the, luck with this. When the book you talked about, yeah, you were an anger person and Steve was an anger person, but you were different from him and in, in the way you related to your anger, weren't you? Or would you say that you were in the I would say so. In the in the Buddhist setup, there are three personality tendencies, and they are the three poisons. So these the three poisons are in all of us. The three poisons are greed, hate, or anger, and delusion. Greed, hate, and delusion, right? And so we each get to say, I'm an anger type. I'm a greed type. I'm a delusion type. Delusion types drive me crazy. So I, a lot of them. I couldn't miss the fact that I was an. <laughs> I couldn't miss the fact that I was um, an anger type. I, I I couldn't miss it. Many years into our relationship, when Steve said he was an anger type, I was really surprised because he was the most patient, the most kind. So what I was seeing was someone in the words of the Buddha, the alleged words of the Buddha, he had learned to tame his mind. And then in the book, I think it is one incident where something made him angry and I saw the anger pass across his face. So I saw the anger arise and I saw him deal with it and I saw the anger leave. And in that moment, for the first time, I knew that he knew what my struggle was, my struggle to, to not be ruled by this emotion, to not let it run my life, because it cost me so much. Oh, it's such a skill to be able to just let it pass like that, you know, because it that's why we it's have so to become powerful. familiar with our own minds. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It would feel like I like I like to think of the the pressure cooker, you know, burbling away. If you don't if you don't do something, it feels like if you don't do something to relieve that pressure, you're going to explode. That's what it would feel like to me. You know, but one... I'm happy to say that's in the past so far. <laughs> One person you mentioned in the book was Harry Roberts. And yeah. I thought that was kind of interesting. That was just kind of an aside in the book uh, that he influenced Steve. Uh, he had this book, Walking in Beauty, which, which Steve really liked, and that he, uh, he had been influenced by the Yurok tribe. And I was, I want to ask you to say more about how he, how Harry Roberts was influenced by the Yurok tribe, and did some of that in any way influence Steve through his friendship with Harry Roberts? 
as as I recall it, when Steve was a young man, a young Zen student living at Green Gulch Farm, Harry Roberts was at Green Gulch Farm. And as I understand it, Harry Roberts, he had been adopted in some way by the Yurok Indians, and they had taught him the Indian ways. This is my, I wish I knew the story more clearly. So the story that Steve would tell is when he was a young man at Green Gulch, Harry Roberts called him over and said, why are you stomping on Mother Earth? And Steve realized in this physical action, he was he was demonstrating his tendency toward anger. So that was the he told that story as the beginning of his relationship with Harry Roberts. And as I understand it, he very closely with Harry Roberts to receive help in growing growing spiritually. And I also think that Harry Roberts, um, Yvonne Rand moved out of Zen Center fairly early. She was the person who stood up and said, you know, Richard Baker is not keeping the precepts and he's the abbot. She's the one who blew the whistle. But Yvonne Rand, I hope someone does a book about Yvonne. So she uh, moved down the road. She lived in Muir Beach and she would be, she would take in the people who were dying. And so I believe that Harry Roberts was living with her and her husband was Bill Sterling when he died. And you know who else did was Lama Govinda. You've heard of, yeah, he, he yeah. died in, in uh, Yvonne's house. So so I didn't have a direct experience of Harry Roberts. I experienced him through Steve and heard over and over Steve's very high regard for him. The cat just came in the room, so anything could happen. What I was just interested next? in the idea of mixing Buddhist, you know, Buddhist presence with uh, indigenous presence and how those would combine. Let's Let's say, let's say that um, that both of them emphasize respect. We can start there. So respect for Mother Earth, respect for this cup that I'm holding, respect for other people. Which is sadly missing and to such a great extent right now. What you say is true, and yeah. but then, John, then the question becomes, so what am I going to do about that? When I was still working as a hospice chaplain, when someone was dying and family was gathered around, and family, were, we always want to know, what can I do? What we're saying is, how can I fix this? So family members would say, Ren, what should we do? And my answer became, create more love. The world needs more love. Your person is dying. Create love in this room. You know, it could be a family creating more love. It could be 12 of us turning ourselves toward living with more respect. And I mean more respect for everyone and everything. Yes, Donald Trump, more respect. It could be 12 of us turning ourselves toward more respect. We may be creating the glue that's holding the whole thing together because what is holding this whole mess together? It's a mystery, right? Yeah. So I I believe literally that the answer of the question, what to do, democracy is hanging by a thread. The life of the planet itself is hanging by the thread. What to do? Practice harder. <laughs> Live the precepts more strictly and try to love more. 
Yeah, I might add I think, something of course, there. It's the serenity. Go ahead. I would, oh, I was going to say, I might say, try to figure out what love is and then love more. Because I think go. some people even <laughs> know. <laughs> Forget other people, sweetheart. This is just you and me. So how do you? I'm not we, sure I know. How, this, this, is my, my, this is my essential practice question is, I realized as a grown-up, after I was sober a while, after I was through being the queen of AA, that didn't work. I, I realized that it was not a matter of finding the right person to love me. It was a matter of my learning to love and how to do that. So I think the answer lies in climbing onto that Zafu and staying there until your heart breaks open this is how this is how we learn to love I don't know a better answer I was starting to quote the serenity prayer what can I change what do I have the power to change it's not the world I actually cannot change Donald Trump I can't even change you John L (laughs) but I do the, the 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 secret is that I do have the ability to change myself through learning who I am, learning my tendencies. And the way to do that is to sit still and become familiar with my mind. It's like wow. wow. And it's hard it's hard it's hard to teach exactly how to do that, I guess, too, because and you know you, you can have really a room hard. full of people, they're sitting on the Zafu, and they may be all doing something entirely different in their heads. And, you know, there may not be any of them who is doing what you would imagine you should be doing to Very good. practice, to do the practice, right? And if you're... So we're back to... We're... I was going to say, if you're teaching, if you're trying to teach the people you don't have any visible way to see how they're taking the teaching you know i've always thought that was i have one of the difficult things about <laughs> about this process i'm on i'm i'm on a little i'm on a little tear i gave a talk up the street last sunday and what i'm talking about in dharma talks these days is zazen you know let me let me help you cut short the period of sitting and not moving and thinking about yourself. That's actually not Zazen. There's actually something else available. But of course, at the same time, what did I say about Steve? He he allowed me to make my own. He he gave me the dignity of my own mistakes, so I can talk about my perception of Zazen, and I'll say it's really interesting currently. It goes through changes. It's endless, and I'm a very restless person, so it's wonderful that it's not this one thing for 30 or 40 years. So I can talk about how it is for me now, but if someone comes to me and says, I want to learn how to meditate because I want comfort. I have to allow that. <laughs> I want to shake them and say, no, you want enlightenment. <laughs> but they get to say. I don't know. I, I kind of got over wanting enlightenment because that didn't seem to go anywhere either. I mean, maybe it comes and maybe it doesn't. But what was it? Wasn't it Dogen that said that when you're sitting, when you're doing zazen, you are enlightened? <laughs> yes, it is. Yes, it is. Practice is enlightenment. And it's Suzuki Roshi who said, why are you always talking about enlightenment? You might get it and not even like it. <laughs> <laughs> so I actually Like the dog chasing the, the car. People yeah, yeah, now you caught it, but then you're stuck with it because with freedom comes responsibility. And I don't think that we're living in a in a culture that values responsibility, do you? <laughs> Not really. 
And I, so I mean, that's a really important point. If you do, if, if you were to have actual enlightenment and you become an enlightened person, of course, I think enlightenment, if it anything, it comes and goes, right? But, but to the extent that you might have some degree of lightning, enlightenment and some better understanding, then that does create a responsibility to share it in the world and to, you know, to work with the world and to, to grow up, make effective use of what you, it, it's kind of a gift that you got, I guess. Stop, stop acting like a little baby. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of those out there stop, right now. Stop banging, banging, banging your high chair with your spoon and demanding, demanding you get things your way. You know, the, in the Four Noble Truths, where the Buddha talks about suffering, and as has been become popular, people will say, "Well, Buddhism means oh, life is full of life is terrible or something." That I really appreciate the the interpretation. Life is suffering. Life is suffering because it's so hard to get your own way. That's the suffering. I don't think the Buddha was talking about war about the death of people we love about atrocities i think the buddha was talking about the everyday frustration of thinking i should get my own way and not being able to that's the everyday grind of suffering that makes us do really crazy things yeah people have have extravagant views of what suffering has to be but suffering can be very small bore i think <laughs> just minor annoyances are a kind of suffering that's it that's it and so and so we need to learn a mature way to deal with the annoyances keep your hand off the car horn keep just don't <laughs> That's my, that's my practice. <laughs> what what can you tell so us about the final, the final ten? Yeah, we're down to the last ten minutes. What or nine minutes? What what can you tell us about the gratitude talk? The beautiful big zendo at Green Gulch was closed for renovation. The talk was held in this little teeny yurt. He was already on the schedule. He had found out it was the Wednesday night talk, which is a kind of small family talk. It's not the big public program. So it was Wednesday and he had found out the previous Sunday or Monday that he had a terminal cancer. He also was taking pain pills. So we, you know, the this is, is it before the internet? It could be. We, those who loved him, found out he was giving the talk. And so it was the most exquisite family gathering. And he was, he sat on a chair in the front of the room in this fairly small space. I want to say surrounded by love, but really, especially at the start of it, surrounded by fear. I drove in with a friend and we saw the fellow who was um, coming in as Abbott. And we stopped and rolled down the car window and he leaned in and what he said was, do you realize this is going to be the first time an uh, Abbott dies since Suzuki Roshi? So it was like that he talked about the process he told us what was going on and then he talked about his gratitude practice and that's why it's called the gratitude talk he expressed the gratitude as an expression of beginner's mind each thing that he saw he tried to treat it as seeing it for the first time. I remember his saying that he would roll over in the morning and see his wife and ask himself, 
who is this, which is kind of funny. Oh, it's your wife, Steve. <laughs> but not even with the person you'd been living with for decades, not already knowing before the encounter has begun. So coming to each person, each experience fresh, leaves the heart open to be free of the judgment and for gratitude to arise. I remember in that talk, he said, um, he said, first thing, before my feet hit the floor, I say to myself, gratitude. And then he said, and it's an open question as to gratitude for what? And I think this is a very important part of it. Again, we're not picking and choosing. We're not making, I don't make a list of the things in my life and say, I'm grateful for them. I was, as I think you know, I was diagnosed with macular degeneration quite a while ago. It's in what's called the dry stage. It's not a big deal, but my macular degeneration converted to wet in one of my eyes earlier this year, and that was uh, very hard. So I'm losing vision, um, blah, 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 blah. Dealing with that, not turning away, not picking up toys to distract myself from what's actually going on. Suddenly I felt gratitude for Medicare, gratitude for finding a good doctor, a friend to drive me to the good doctor. And I realized I also had to have on the list gratitude for the macular degeneration itself, gratitude for everything. This is a big teaching in not picking and choosing. And that comes from, from Steve. I have, um, what's his name? Seven story, Thomas Merton. I have a, a phrase from him always in front of my eyes. He says, uh, our job is to love others without stopping to judge whether or not they are worthy. So that is, that is Steve's gratitude. That's the vastness of the gratitude. And if we keep that up, you know where we're going to end up? We're going to end up being grateful for life itself. It's not a burden. It's not a chore. <laughs> it's a gift. I think that's the final frontier of spiritual practice. <laughs> I can imagine being like grateful for the COVID virus. There you go. That's a such a different way to think about it, but yeah. That's exactly the request. That is the request. And it's, you know, Suzuki Roshi is always talking about at the start of a period of Zazen, set your intention. So we must not use these teachings to, you know, oh, I'm such a bad person because I'm not grateful. Oh, I'm such a, no. We set our intention. My intention today, my intention today, John, is to love everyone and everything. I'm going to fail, but at least I know that that intention is there. So I here we're down to three minutes, and I yes. want to say, if any, if anyone listening to this is uh, so inclined, I am. I I hold a Zoom Zendo three nights a week, seven o'clock Pacific time. And I have a adequate website, wrenchandbunts.com, and you can get details there. And it's, um, <laughs> I have people from, let's see, Whidbey Island, from Iowa, uh, local people, just heard from someone in Japan. So, and it's, we sit for 30 minutes and then we just check in and we form Sangha, right? The three treasures, I've mentioned the three poisons, the three treasures, Buddha, Dharma, Sangha. And it is said that Sangha is the greatest of the three. So we need each other. 
So if anyone wants to come and sit, please do. And if they want to buy my books, <laughs> they're on Amazon. <laughs> so I'll, and what is it? Um, we'll have links on the website. And someone from Texas is already considering joining the Sangha. Uh, and meant to before. And, and, and I'm going to say, never, too, yeah. cool. But I want to say for you in Austin, I have the highest regard for Chorio, who, Choro, who's the current abiding teacher at Austin Zen Center. Oh, yes. So you have the opportunity to sit, to sit in the flesh with a very, very strong group. Yeah. I so, my darling, so is that there. enough for today? I yeah we have yeah. reached just the end of the hour and I am so appreciative. I have such gratitude for the conversation that you brought today and for Anything the book to help keep our hearts keep our hearts open. Yeah, buy the book. This is a wonderful book. book. Yes, there it, he is. and it can be read in one sitting. You can stay in touch with Plutopia at plutopia.io on Facebook. Look for at Plutopia News. On Twitter, it's at Plutopia. This is the Plutopia News Network, 20 minutes into the future.